Let's open with a word of prayer. And Father, thank you. Thank you for this day as we enter into the Christmas season, Father. We're just so thankful, most of all, Father, for you sending your Son into the world to be the Savior for all of us who would trust in Christ. We thank you for what he did, Father, on the cross and what that means to us, the opportunity we have to be in heaven because of his suffering and his pain. Father, we lift up Jeff. We pray for the doctors over there that they would have wisdom and steady hands and that it's probably the surgery's probably already done, Father. And yet we praise you even now for what you did and how you will be with him and guide him through this. We ask that you be with all those teachers around Lakeside this morning who are giving lessons, Father, from your word. May you guide their words. May they be bold and clear and concise. And may your word affect those hearers, Father, that they'll be more like Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking about preparing a lesson this week, I was thinking about Christmas. And I was mulling over trying to put together a Christmas lesson. But... Maybe next week. <laughs> I was in, it will be closer to Christmas next week. But I was studying, I was continuing my study in the book of Malachi. And I realized that the passage that we're looking at does have a Christmas message in it. Not the traditional Christmas message about Mary and Joseph and a manger scene. But what is the message of Christmas? The message of Christmas is that Christ is coming or has come. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to see very clearly the message of Christ coming is here in Malachi, but not maybe in the way we usually think about it at Christmas. Last week, if you remember, we studied a passage from chapter 2. This week will be in chapter 3, the end of chapter 2, end of chapter 3, if you want to be turning there. If you remember, the name Malachi means messenger, and that's what he is. He is a messenger of God. And he brings and brought a message to the prophet Malachi to share with the people of Judah. And he's going to do that to us as well as we get into his word. Our text this morning will be chapter 2, verse 17. And we'll read down through chapter 3, verse 6. So let me read that for you. I'm reading out of the ESV. Starting in verse 17, he says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness and to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed." If you remember any of the teaching I did a couple of months ago on Malachi and that we continued last week, hopefully you remember that one of the big problems that the people and the priests of Judah were having were that they were not seeing God in the proper perspective. They had grown cold, apathetic in their worship. They were bringing sick and lame sacrifices before the Lord. Last week we saw how the priests who were supposed to be teaching the people were being unfaithful in their ministry of the word. They were not listening to God. They were compromising Scripture. They had turned away and thereby had caused people to stumble. If you remember, at the root of these problems was a lack of honor and fear of God. There was no reverential awe in their lives. God had become common. They were just going through the motions. In today's language, I would say they were playing little church games. And we know this is relevant to us today. Many today are playing games with church and have no real fear and honor and not in awe of God. So today, as we continue along that line of thinking, Malachi proclaims a message to the people of Judah and to us that is both a message of warning and a message of hope. And it's also where I see the connection with Christmas. Because the message from Malachi's perspective is about the one who is to come. For us, it's about the one who has come and will come again. The focal point and the main theme from this passage comes from verse 2 of chapter 3. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3 again. This is the emphasis. But who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The one who is coming is like a refiner's fire. That's the theme that I wanted to really focus in on this morning. The way that I want to approach it is very basic. You've heard of the who, what, why, where, when, how approach. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, not all of those, but we'll look at the who, what, why, and how. Not necessarily in that order. But if we answer these questions, we'll have a good understanding of the passage. So we'll start with the who, which is answered in verse 1. But before we go there and talk about the one who is like a refiner's fire, I want to read verse 17 of chapter 2 again. This is the introduction to this thought. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? What leads up to this proclamation about the coming of the one who is like a refiner's fire is the message that the people have wearied God. That's a thought, isn't it? That you could weary God. How have they wearied God? There's two things mentioned that they've done. One, they've called people good who are doing evil. What does that mean? It means they've made up their own system of what is right and wrong, doesn't it? They've included things God calls evil as being okay. They were saying people who are doing evil are considered good. And not only that, in their minds, they rationalize it to the point 
of saying that God actually thinks this is good and is okay. According to our text, this kind of talk wearies God. The second thing they were saying is that they were asking, where is the God of justice? Isn't that kind of ironic? If they understood the God of justice, would they have been asking for Him to come? God, through the prophet Malachi, is going to tell them about the coming of the God of justice, and it's probably not what they're going to want to hear. And many today in our culture would not want to hear this message either. The people of Malachi's day did not have a clear understanding of God's righteous judgment, and I believe that's still true today. People all over the world this time of year celebrate Christmas. They acknowledge the Christ child coming into the world, but many fail to think about the full impact of his coming. I was reminded of this this past week. In our community, we have a manger scene that we set up every year at the entrance of the community. It's really nice. I was blessed this year to be asked to say a few words when, at the ceremony that they call the lighting of the nativity. We had about 120 people there. They sang some songs, There was, and I was able to share a brief message. And I was so thankful to be able to do that. But as I looked around at the group in attendance, I saw many who I knew never go to church. They never think about God. Their lives give no proof that they are believers. And yet they acknowledge Christmas is about a baby in a manger, Jesus Christ, the child coming to earth to save us from our sins. They would agree and, and participate in that. And I was thankful that they were there. Yet sadly, I know but many of them have no clue about the full impact of the Christmas story. They have blinders on that narrow their focus to the joy, the peace offered at that time of year. They rejoice over the coming of the baby in the manger, but give no real thought to the impact of his second coming when he comes as ruler and judge. The people of Judah were asking about the coming of God of justice, and some of them were not going to like the answer. So, who is this one who is coming, who is like a refiner's fire? That's the place where we'll start. For us, this is not, not really all that hard, but think about the people in their day. It wouldn't have been as easy. They didn't have the scripture that we have today, the full Bible, to look back at. Malachi actually mentions three different persons in verse 1 of chapter 3 as he answers this question about the one who's coming. The first person he mentions as he proclaims a message from God is God himself. Look at the very first words. Behold, I send. This I is identified at the end of this verse. It says, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you will seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. Says who? The Lord of hosts. Who is the Lord of hosts? That's Jehovah God, the Father. The second person mentioned is Jehovah God's messenger. He says, I send my messenger. And he will prepare the way for me. The words there sound a lot like the words in Matthew 11, Mark 1, Luke 7, all which appear in the account of John the Baptist coming on the scene, preaching repentance and pointing the way to Christ. John would come and did come, and he did prepare the way for Christ's first coming. And there will be a messenger like John that comes to prepare the way for his second coming. If you turn over a chapter to chapter 4 of Malachi, 
here Malachi is prophesying about the great day of the Lord when all the evil will be burned up. And he says in chapter 4 verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn back the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you turn to Luke one seventeen, you'd find Luke saying that John the Baptist went before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers here about who exactly this messenger is that is described in verse 1 of chapter 3, but it's someone like John the Baptist and or, and or Elijah who does a work to prepare the way for the one who is like a refiner's fire that's coming. Which brings us to the third person mentioned in verse 1. God Jehovah will send a messenger like John the Baptist and Elijah to prepare the way for who? It seems to be a different person and yet the same person. The I who is talking says he will suddenly appear in his temple. This is a really good example of the truth of that God and Jesus are in nature the same and yet are also separate because he also says he will suddenly appear in his temple and he says that it's me. He said he's preparing the way for me. So God is coming in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is coming is the Son of God, the one who was with God, who is God, and who came into the world and made himself known to us personally in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. That's why we celebrate this time of year, the coming of the Christ child. So this baby in a manger is also the one who, verse 2 says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. Not quite the picture of the manger scene, is it? That's the who. Next question is why. Why must he be a refiner's fire? Notice that this type of fire is narrowed to a specific type. It didn't say he's coming like fire. He said he's coming like a refiner's fire. Think about that. Think about the different kinds of fire. You have a forest fire that consumes everything in its path. You have an incinerator fire that you throw everything into and it's all burned up and destroyed. But that's not what it's used to describe it. It's described as a refiner's fire. What is a refiner? It's a person that heats up a fire and puts metal into it and melts it down and the impurities float to the top and they skim off the top and then what they have left is just the pure stuff, the pure valuable stuff. That's a refiner's fire. So why is the Lord coming like a refiner's fire? It's not specifically said here, but it's implied that the people then, as well as everyone today, are in need of being refined. Verse 3 says that He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. The impression is... The implication is that they need to be refined. They were not being obedient. We learned that as in the last couple of weeks. They were not fulfilling their part of the covenant. And so they, as we are, in need of refining. The truth is taught throughout Scripture. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned each to his own way. 
1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Scripture teaches us that we were born through Adam into sin and the natural inclination of all of our hearts is to rebel against God. And yet Scripture also teaches us that there will be no sin in heaven, no impurities of any kind. Therefore, if God were only an all-consuming fire, there would be no one left for heaven except the Trinity. Heaven would be empty. Thank God He is a refining fire. He will not abandon those He calls to be His own. Look again at the end of this passage, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This ties in with verse 1. He is the messenger of the covenant. He's not an all-consuming forest fire because he made a covenant. One sealed by his own death, his own blood. Hebrews 13.20 says it, it describes it the blood of the everlasting covenant. So why will he come as a refiner's fire? To be faithful to his covenant. To purify the ones he has called and prepare them for heaven. Skim off all the impurities so that we can be in heaven. Look at verse 2 again. Not only will he come like a refiner's fire, but he also will be like fuller's soap. I haven't seen that brand at the supermarket. What's, what's fuller's soap? <laughs> I had to look that one up a little bit to find out what a fuller's soap was. Some versions say launderer's soap. I didn't really know what a fuller was. I researched it a little bit. And a fuller or a launderer was a dyer who would actually whiten clothing. The soap they used was a special soap that was derived from an alkaline salt found in soap plants, which are then reduced to ashes to obtain the potash. This was an occupation. That was their job. There's a reference in Second Kings to a fuller's field, which was a spot outside the walls of Jerusalem where the fullers or the launderers would wash and dry the clothes. I looked up a cross-reference to see where this word was used in other places, and it's used several times. One of the uses stood out to me. It's in Mark 9.3. This word was used in the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. You remember this, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up into the mountain and he manifested to them a little of his glory when he was transfigured before them. And Mark says his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The King James says, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. We are told in many places in Scripture that our sins will be made white as what? Snow. One of my favorite is Isaiah 118 where the Lord says, Your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But Revelations 21:27 says that nothing unclean will ever enter into it. Talking about heaven, eternal life. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Since no sinful people will ever enter heaven, only those made clean, then we can reason that all of us are in need of the refiner's fire, the fuller's soap. That's the answer to the why. We've seen the who, we've seen the why now, the how. It's very important after knowing why we need to be refined that we ask the question how. How can we experience the refiner's fire and not the all-consuming fire? Verse 5 makes it clear 
when he comes, not everyone will be refined. Look at verse 5 again. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This makes it clear, contrary to what many people believe, that not everyone will be refined. Some will be consumed. This is talking about final judgment. Again, over in chapter 4, verse 1 of Malachi, he says, For behold, the day comes burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is not talking about refining. This is talking about judgment and condemnation. When the Lord comes back again, some will be refined, some will be consumed. So how can one experience refinement if that is what is needed to be made ready for eternity? One thing we can be sure that the answer is not, it's not something we can do in and of ourselves. The word refinement itself implies something done to you. If you could get rid of your own sin, you wouldn't need to be refined. So we all know the answer is to trust in the only one who has the cleansing power to wash away all of our sins. That's the answer of the whole Bible. It's to trust in Christ, the Messiah, the holy, sinless Lamb who was slain as our sacrifice. Not church, not good deeds. The only way to experience the refiner's fire and not the all-consuming fire of condemnation is to acknowledge our need for a Savior. Repent and turn to Christ to trust Him that He will bring us through the fire to the endless joy of eternal life. That's the who, that's the why, that's the how. Now for the what. What is life like in the refiner's fire? I want to say from the outset, the most important aspect of the point is that it provides assurance. A real confidence in the security of our salvation. The fact that the fire that we experience is for refinement and not for destruction. Look at verse 6 again. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This means God does not change. He keeps His promises. And His promise is that if we truly love Him, if we truly fear Him, His fire will cleanse us, not destroy us. We can trust in His unchanging, cleansing love. Another aspect of what life is like in the refiner's fire is if there is no gain, there is no pain. We've heard that statement. It's a refiner's fire. It's not an all-consuming fire, but it's still fire. Think about that. If he had just used the illustration of soap, it might have had a different picture, but he didn't. The emphasis of this illustration is on fire. I cannot picture a life in a fire without some pain being involved. I remember the words of Jesus when he said, The pure in heart will see God. There's no way to be pure without going through the refiner's fire. And that's going to be a little bit painful. Malachi doesn't elaborate on this, but there are plenty of other scriptures that do. So I want to spend the remainder of our time fleshing out what life in the refiner's fire is like. 
It can and will be painful. And within the context of this pain, I see two manifestations of this. First is the pain of affliction. And we're going to need to turn to a few other scriptures to emphasize this point. Turn to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. 1 Peter 1. Now these are going to be scriptures that you're familiar with. 1 Peter 1, verse 6 says, he's talking about the hope of heaven. In the first verse of chapter 1, then he says in verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter describes a life in the refiner's fire as a testing of one's faith. This testing, according to Peter, comes through various trials. That means there can be many and they can be varied. All of us are going to experience many different trials that will test us. And according to Peter, the result will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. You probably have this one memorized. James chapter 1. He says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James instructs us that the Pain from trials will perfect us and make us more like Christ. And even if we find it painful, there's still reason for joy. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. If I'm going too fast for you, just write them down. (laughs) Hebrews 12, verse 5. Here the writer instructs us on the discipline of God to His children. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here we have the writer instructing us on the discipline of God to his children. He explains it very basic. He loves us. That's why he does it. He says it's going to be painful. But in the moment, but later it results in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we could go on and on. Scripture after scripture instructing us on trials, testing, discipline, suffering. No pain, no gain. 
It's all for a purpose to mature us, to shape us, to refine us. That's what life is like being in the refiner's fire. It's not a life of peaceful bliss with no struggles, no heartache, no hurt or pain. In fact, the opposite is true. A real believer will experience testing, trials, discipline. But all the pain is for the purpose of refining us, drudging off the impurities and making us more pure, more holy, more like Christ. But there's another manifestation of this pain. There's not just the pain of affliction and cast upon us by the sovereign plan of God. There is also the pain of self-denial. Turn over to Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, this is the words of Jesus speaking. Verse 29 says, and he's just got through talking about murder, about anger, about lust. And he says in Matthew 5.29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Now we know that Jesus wasn't saying this literally so that we would pluck out our eyes or cut off our hands. But it does show how important it is to cut out the sin in our life. Jesus is saying that we need to do whatever we have to to put sin to death. And it's going to take sacrifice. Let's be real. Sin is fun, at least for a season. And it takes the pain of sacrifice and denial to stop it. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. In this passage, Paul is using the analogy of a runner. And he says, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 9, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Here Paul impresses upon us the need for godly discipline, a work ethic, a toil and regimen that's not easy. Just like any athlete that wants to succeed has to be on a disciplined regimen of exercise and practice, a Christian will need to undergo the same type of thing. And according to Paul, it's not easy. It's painful to buffet one's body, to be disciplined. But it's also necessary, a crucial part of the Christian life. You're probably familiar with Romans 8.13. Paul says, If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This verse shows us that it's not just something we should do, but it's something we will be doing if we are true believers. Putting to death implies that we are putting forth effort. It doesn't just happen. There's a conscious, disciplined effort to mortify sin in our life. All of these verses imply that in our attempts to assist in our own purification process, we should and we do, that there will be a lot of hard work involved. It doesn't just happen by God speaking and us being refined. We are involved in the process. It's something that has to be done to us 
but it's not something we step back from and it just happens. We are involved in the process. There's two parts to this. God is at work bringing things, testing and trials into our life to refine us, but He's also changing our will and our desires that we then put ourselves in the position of disciplining ourselves for godliness. Being in the refiner's fire is not easy. It's not without pain, but it's worthwhile. What is life like in the refiner's fire? More than anything else, it's an unmovable, unshakable trust that we are in God's sovereign, loving hand, that He has a plan for us, that we're on a path to heaven. To get there, we need to be refined, and therefore we submit to walk through the fire, allowing God to cleanse us, to purify us, knowing at the other end there is life and peace. We can have assurance that God's fire is for good, to purify us and make us more like Christ, preparing us for eternity. That's why life is not just pain. Being in the refiner's fire is also the most joyful life one can have. James, Peter, Paul... All of them, as they teach us on this subject, also display in parallel with the pain and discipline that's involved, there's also joy amidst all of it. Rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Consider your trials joy. Because life walking with Christ, as we encounter all of that, Descending above all of that is that we have a loving, sovereign God who wants good for us and is preparing us for eternity. That brings joy. We have purpose. We have meaning. People of the world don't understand that. But if by chance there might be someone here today that has not trusted in Christ, who has not repented of their sin and rebellion... I'm sorry to say God does not come to you as a refiner's fire. To you God comes as a fire of condemnation and judgment. I plead with you to humble yourselves and repent before it's too late. For the rest of us, I thank God, as verse 6 says, the Lord does not change and His children are not consumed. Is that a Christmas message that we can be happy about? We deserve it. But because He is one like a refiner's fire... He refines us. He does for us what we can't do for ourselves. We participate. But even that participation is only by God's grace. Because if our will and desires never were refined, we would never have the desire, let alone the will, to participate in our own refinement. It's something that has to be done. And by God's grace, it is and will be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, you have sent your Son, who is like a refiner's fire. Father, we acknowledge our need for refinement. We acknowledge our weakness, our sin. And Father, we thank you for sending the Savior to die on the cross for us, to pay our debt. And Father, that you don't leave us to ourselves, that you work every moment of our life, Father, is part of your plan and purpose for us. May we feel that presence. May we not be desperate or 
Uh, Father, may we not have anxiety or fear. May we just feel your presence, acknowledge your plan and purpose for our lives, and everything that we go through, Father, lead us to the other side for a life of eternity in heaven with you. May we understand that as we contemplate the couple of weeks before Christmas. Father, we just pray that you would help us to focus on the real meaning of Christmas. Don't allow us to be tempted like many in the world to just go through the motions, Father, but to really pause and reflect upon what you have done for us. May we understand that. May we have real fear and awe. And Father, just understand your grace towards us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.